So something to know about me is that I unironically love professional wrestling. And <laughs> I'm not talking about what happens at the Olympics. Um, there's like rules and stuff with that. Uh, I'm talking about what happens on SmackDown or Raw, right, Andy? Uh, I'm talking about what happens in the ring, the, the quasi-soap opera meets circus, uh, meets just, like, stunt people doing their thing. Um, and yes, like, I get, Scott, but Scott, it's fake. Yeah, it's fake, but they still have to, like, jump off of, like, a 15-foot cage onto a table and, like, not die. Right? Like, that's pretty cool. Um, also, the writing I just find hilarious. Uh, Andy and I fell in love with wrestling together when she was very little. In fact, I think we got a picture of her for Halloween one year. She went as the one and only macho man Randy Savage. Let's see if we can pull that up. <laughs> Complete with Slim Jims. Uh, if you know, you know. Thank you so much. Andy, that might have been my favorite Halloween costume of yours ever. She still has bedsheets that are WWE-themed bedsheets. She sleeps with Roman Reigns' like, sweaty, greasy face cuddled up against hers. Um, anyways, it's hard for me to read the story of Jacob wrestling with some mysterious figure in the night without thinking about WWE. And the sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge of it all, we're like, we know it's not real, but we're also entertained by it, but the stakes are pretty low because it's all premeditated, it's all sort of preordained, we might say, theologically. Um, and, and yet, I, I don't know that what's happening at night with Jacob wrestling this figure um, that today, anyways, we're going to interpret as the presence of God or perhaps an agent of God, that, that that's not really the same thing. It's not some preordained outcome. It's not some show that we're getting to watch that God already has sort of planned how it's going to, how it's going to end. And, and it's, it's not fake. It's, it's very real and the stakes are very high. Um, and if you've never read this story before, good. And if you have read the story before, good. But uh, my hope is that we could go into this story seeing that it's about more than just a singular event. Um, this is really the inflection point in many ways for the life of a man named Jacob, who by the end of the story will be known as Israel. That same Israel that becomes the name of a people. Jacob will end up having 12 sons, and from there the 12 tribes of Israel will be born. And so this is a story about the identity, not just of a person, but of a people. And in many ways, this is a turning point in the book of Genesis itself, because this is a book, as we'll talk about in a moment, that's ultimately about the story of a people coming into being. And we're about to see the birth of Israel from the person of Jacob. So with all of that in our minds and in our hearts, let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 24. Um, the full passage begins in verse 22, but I'm going to sort of catch you up to where we are in this story. So Jacob is, um, is sort of an interesting character in, in the book of Genesis. We talked about his story several weeks ago this summer, but he's someone who is introduced to us as something of a trickster and a manipulator, and he cheats his brother out of his birthright over a cup of stew, and then he steals a blessing from his father by dressing up as a goat man to convince him that he's his, his slightly older twin brother, Esau. And Esau is so angry with everything that Jacob has done, and rightly so, that he threatens to kill him, and so Jacob runs off away from Esau. 
And he finds himself alone. And there he is met by the presence of God who points in the direction of his uncle Laban. And there he works for decades so that he can win the right to marry his cousins. Yes, you heard that right. We're just going to keep on moving. And... <laughs> So he marries his cousins and a couple of other servants, and, and then he has this family, this very biblical, four wives, one husband, many children, family, and um, it, he grows and he prospers, and he has livestock and, and this huge household, and he's preparing to return back home to finally confront his brother Esau, because he's again visited by the Spirit of God that says, you know, all this is great, but there's one thing that you're going to really regret if you don't take care of, and you need to finally go back and deal with this broken relationship. And so he does. He starts heading back that way. And as they're getting close, one night he sends his whole household on ahead of him across the stream. And he stays back by himself. And Jacob does not end up alone very often in his story. He's a twin by birth. Like quite literally, he spends most of his life around somebody else. So he finds himself in the unique position of being alone for a change. And it's dark. And he knows what tomorrow, he thinks he knows what tomorrow is going to hold, and it's there that he encounters this mysterious presence that we'll hear about now. But Jacob stayed there apart by himself, and a man, or a figure, or maybe God, wrestled with him until dawn broke. And when this person saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. And the man said, let me go because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And he said to Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. And then he said, go, your name won't be Jacob any longer but Israel because you struggled with God and with men, and one. And Israel means someone who strives with God, or even God struggles. And so Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel. He says, because I've seen God face to face, and my life has been saved. And the sun rose as Jacob passed Penuel limping because of his thigh. And therefore, Israelites, don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle to this day because he grabbed Jacob's thigh muscle at the tendon. The word of God. <laughs> word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. Thanks. So... This is a story that has been preached so many times in, in Christian history, and, and it's certainly a text that has been studied like to death. And, and one thing I want to make abundantly clear is what I'm going to be offering today is one interpretation of this text, even from the standpoint of who is involved. There is so much discussion about who this figure is. Scholars are very divided about this. Um, the word that's used there, Elohim, it can mean God. It can also mean agent of God. It can also mean just a person. And so the text is maybe frustratingly, but I think um, uh, quite intentionally vague about who Jacob is wrestling with. Is he wrestling with God? Is he wrestling with an angel? Is he wrestling with Esau? Is he wrestling with himself? Is this some sort of figurative metaphor? The, the text is not telling us all, every, every detail. I think in part because that's not the most important thing. But what I can lean on is other texts in the Hebrew Bible that seem to encourage us to see this figure as something of a divine presence. 
The books of Job and Hosea, for instance, make reference to this story, and specifically as Jacob wrestling with either God or an angel. And so for today's purposes, I'm going to be looking at the story through that same framework, because I'm going to meet the text in the same way that people in those days and age, that day and age, met with it as well. And quite frankly, because I think when we see it through that lens of Jacob wrestling with a divine presence, there's some really fascinating theological um, ramifications that I think could really bless us in the same way that Jacob is blessed. So if we're going to interpret this text as Jacob wrestling with something divine, let's zoom out real quick and talk about Genesis and talk about the character of God in Genesis. Because there's a lot of assumptions we can make as 21st century DFW residents that um, maybe we're not as as commonplace in these days. If you miss anything else about the, the book of Genesis and who God is, don't miss that God is one. That is one of the really big claims that the Jewish tradition is offering within its cultural context, is that we believe in one God, the God, one God, a God over everything. And to make this claim really clear, we have Genesis chapter 1, the cre- one of the creation stories. And you may remember it if you've read or heard it before. In the beginning, there was nothing, right? And then God said, let there be light. So God's in charge of all that light. And then God lets there, say, let there uh, be planets. Okay, God's in charge of the earth and in charge of the water. Oh, also that and all the creatures and the monsters in the water oh yeah also that and also the land oh yeah also that and also all the beasts upon the land oh yeah also that and all the plants and all the wildlife and and all the birds in the air and the fish in the sea and also all the people you know everything in genesis 1 is all this stuff all this stuff people 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 stuff 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 god's over it all that's a pretty wild claim to make in some cultural context back then. Think about life within the uh, Egyptian mythologies, for instance, or in the Greek mythologies where you had a God over this thing and a God over this thing and a God over this thing, making the claim that you believe in one God that's over everything. That's a, that's a unique theological claim for the Jews to be making. And what we also see quickly is that there's some nuance to this God as well. Because if you keep reading the Bible, which I encourage if you're going to start, keep, um, keep reading the Bible past Genesis 1, which has this very singular and supreme sounding God, you're then introduced to a second version of creation, where rather than this being a God over the cosmos and hovering over all the waters of creation, this is a God who lives in a garden and who lives with two people, Adam and Eve, and it's this very small an intimate story and relational story where it seems like what God wants more than anything else, even above control over the cosmos, is a relationship with these people. And God has remarkably few rules to live in God's world. Just don't eat that fruit, right? Oh, yep, that one right there. Don't, okay. Well, that was nice while it lasted. And so then Adam and Eve are no longer allowed to live in the Garden of Eden, but God's not done with them. God doesn't just say, you didn't cut it, so I'm just going to move on to the otters, I guess, and see if they do any better. Like God clothes them, and God blesses them as they go out into a harsh environment, and still there's this relationship and this pursuit. And we see this God pursuing people then through the stories of not just Adam and Eve, but then into the stories of Noah, and then into Abraham, and then into Isaac, and now into Jacob. This is a God constantly in pursuit of that relationship with God's people. And so we have this interesting tension form where God is, yes, like this sovereign, all-powerful, singular God, and yet this is also a God 
who expresses God's power in the midst of relationship. Now, that's really fascinating to see. And so now if we take a look at this story specifically, we, uh, Pastor Kathy and I held a, a seminar on Wednesday night called Bible Literacy 101, and it, we had a really good time. It was fun. And one of the questions that came up, one of the conversations that came up out of that was around like biblical literalism. Like why, uh, especially in modern day America, there seems to be so many churches that are built on this foundation of biblical literalism. You know, you read it, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, done. Um, and and uh, I think it needs to be said specifically that Genesis, and in amongst all the other books of the Bible, Genesis specifically is one of those books that just cannot be held like a literal text. It's not a history book in the same way that we think of nonfiction history books today. It's a text that, yes, is going to tell you who, what, where, and when, but none of those are as important as why. Everything in Genesis is in support of the deeper and more fundamental question of why. Why do we exist? Why is God our God? Uh, why is life on this earth so hard? Why do we feel like we need to keep going? Like, that's, that's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And so when you're reading Genesis and you get really stuck on that, like, literal level of who, what, where, and when, like, don't lose sight of why. It's, it's just under there. It's just beneath the surface. And that's what the authors, plural, are trying to help us to see in the book of Genesis. Imagine if we read the story about Jacob and I said, from a literal perspective, this is a story about why Jacob's name was legally changed to Israel, um, why he now walks with a limp, and most importantly, friends, why we do not eat tendons from that part of the, the meat muscle. Like, does this mean that I'm no longer allowed to eat the beef and tendon noodle soup at Wu Wei Din, my favorite Taiwanese restaurant near my house? No, it does not! In the name of Jesus, I'll probably be eating that soup tonight because I've been thinking about it all weekend as I've been preparing this sermon. I really love beef and tendon noodle soup. I reject uh, the literal interpretation of this text. Um, but like that, that to, when we begin to get on this path of biblical literalism, it can lead us to really weird places. And so what's the deeper theological message that it's trying to communicate? I do think that the theology of sovereignty and control is all up in this story. Like you cannot read this story through the lens of Jacob wrestling with God specifically um, and, and not see that there's these themes of sovereignty and control running through it, but maybe not in the way that we might think for a cosmically powerful God. Also on Wednesday night, the theme of fundamentalism came up. Because quickly talking about biblical literalism, you have to talk about fundamentalism, which I know a lot of people who are part of this community have come out of a Christian tradition of fundamentalism. And my friends, fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism specifically, is predicated on a theology of control and dominance. Right? That's the, the whole reason you take the Bible literally is because if you begin to pull on one single thread, the whole thing's going to fall apart on you. And that's why it's, it's so important not to ask questions. That's why it's so important to, 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 to not challenge too much or not look too close at, at the you know, scholarly critique of these texts. Because if you begin to pull on those threads, the tapestry unravels rather quickly. And yet when I think about this text specifically, and if we take it seriously, we see a God who has a very different relationship to power and control than we might think. No, notice again, in fact, I'm going to read it again, and I want you to think through and listen for who is in charge of this fight. Jacob stayed apart by himself, and Elohim wrestled with him until dawn broke. 
when Elohim saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, when Elohim saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. And then Elohim said, let me go because dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And so Elohim said to Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. And then Elohim said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with men and won. And Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And then Jacob let go. Who's in control? Who's got the upper hand? Who's winning this fight? Who's tapping out as the referee is going, one, two, Jacob, it says several times, prevails. In fact, Elohim's own admission is like, you're winning this. Why won't you stop? I need you to let me go. Jacob is the one who finally calls it off. Jacob is the one who makes demands of this mysterious figure who approaches him in the night. Does this sound like a God of sovereign dominance and predestined, preordained outcomes? I don't know if that's the God that I see here. The message it seems to be communicating to me, at least, is this, that God is willing to be in relationship with us, especially when it is a struggle, and most especially when we refuse to let go and hand God an easy win. So Jacob is not just wrestling with God for one night. Jacob's whole story is a wrestle. He's the younger twin, the one who just missed everything good in life, right? Because in his world, if you're the first one out the gates, life is pretty awesome. But if you ain't first, you're last. Thank you, Ricky Bobby fans in the audience. <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last. Jacob missed it by that much, and he missed it to this big dolt of a bigger brother that will sell his birthright for a pot of stew who's so hairy that he has to put on goat fur to resemble him, right? He's like, this guy, this is who I'm next to in life. And then he has to run away from him because he's reminded, oh yeah, he's actually a master hunter and can kill me. And, and then he's stuck working and laboring for year after year for his really just as manipula manipulative uncle. Uh, and, and he still out of that somehow has managed to build this life for himself that he never should have had. And he has all this prosperity and all of this wealth, and God won't let him go. And God says, you got to go back to Esau. I know you think this is what life is about, but you, if you don't go back, you're going to have missed the biggie. You broke something back there, man, and, and you've got to take care of it. And so he does, and it's on that night before, before dawn is breaking, when all Jacob can see is darkness. The last words his brother said to him were, I'm going to kill you. And this is who he's about to go see. And so he says, you know what, God, why don't you visit me one more time? <laughs> Let's try this again. And I empathize with Jacob because I think about the times in my life when I've been full of doubts, right? God's saying, go back. It's going to be okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, God. Did your older brother who looks like a goat man tell you he's going to kill you? <laughs> no, because you're the one God. You don't have siblings, right? Cool. I've been full of doubts in my life where I say, God, I'm, I, I'm not willing to accept an easy answer here. I'm not going to give you an easy win. I've been full of anger at times in, in my life when, 
trauma or tragedy has struck my family, and I think, oh, like heck, I'm going to let some little namby-pamby Sunday school answer gloss over this one. I don't need a Band-Aid right now, God. I need you to come to the mat on this one. we got something to work out. Or, or maybe I've just been full of fear because you're telling me the dawn's breaking, but all I see right now is moonlight, and I am not looking forward to the morning. And so you're telling me, have peace, peace that passes understanding. Well, I need to understand something, God, so will you please meet me on the mat? I can empathize with Jacob because I realize this isn't just a one-night wrestling match. This is a wrestling match he's been living for his whole life. And yet, what then I notice is that God still shows up. The character of God informs the character of Israel, not just the person, but the people. Remember, this is not just a story about a wrestling match. This is a story about a people coming into being. And who we worship as God informs the people that we become. And so if God, for instance, is a God of control and coercion, then we are likely going to live the same. I wonder why it is that our brothers and Brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention recently excluded women from leadership. It's not funny. It's not. Why? Because if there were women in leadership in those systems, maybe we'd understand why headline after headline right now is Baptist pastor in Texas is arrested on abuse charges. And it's not just the Baptist church, it's the Methodist church too. We let women into pulpits, but not the big ones. Maybe there's a reason why when we think God is all sovereign and, and coercive and controlling, that allows us to then support and, 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 and propagate systems of oppression and systems of structure that keep people down because that's who God is. So we're just, we're just living out God's identity, right, friends? As long as it benefits me. Or, conversely, if God is a God of purity and then abandonment, imagine if God had said, you know what, Jacob, you are so screwed up, I'm moving on to the next one. Has anyone ever told you that God's moving on from you? Has anyone ever told you that God's casting you away? That God's abandoning you because of whatever that person seems to think you've done wrong? Right? That, that, there's a theology for that. It's because when your view of God is God that is so pure that God possibly cannot be touched by anyone who doesn't meet this standard of perfection that, you know, that person sets, then we begin to live the same way. And yet here is a God who doesn't just touch Jacob but goes to the mat with him. It says, I will wrestle it out with you. Or maybe, maybe God could be a God of relationship and wrestling. Maybe Genesis is saying that, yes, yes, God is cosmically powerful, and, and yes, God is holy and good. But even more than that, God is with us. God's identity is to be with us, to, to be before us and behind us and below us and and above us, but, but to also be within us and, and on the mat with us because God, for some reason, is so in love with us. We can't figure it out. Genesis says we're still working it out, but, but that's who we know God is at the end of the day, that God will choose relationship and wrestling over a flood. God will choose relationship and wrestling over domination. God will choose relationship and wrestling even in the face of some punk kid that grew up but never really grew up and just won't let go. God will still choose that relationship. I wonder if that would mean we would live the same if we worshiped a God like that. 
I wonder what it would mean for us to live in relationships where we wrestle with people that are really hard to wrestle with, that just won't let us go, and maybe we won't let them go. And both of us can say, we're not leaving this until some sort of transformation takes place. Maybe the dawn breaks, maybe a name gets changed, maybe my tendon gets pulled out of socket, but something's going to change here. I wonder how that could inform who God's people live, how God's people live, if we were as committed to that kind of relationship as God is. Not to control and not to abandon, but rather to wrestle. This is a profound case for human agency and the freedom that we possess. In just a moment, we're going to receive new members into this church, and they're going to be asked a question. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you? We hear that every single time, but I wonder if we really do. Do we accept the freedom and power that a God would give us to actually talk back to God, to make demands of God, to grab hold of God and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me? Do we accept that kind of freedom and power as Christian people? Can we demand transformation from our God in the midst of our wrestling match and say, God, I need us not to leave the mat until something changes? Whether we're wrestling with our doubts or wrestling with our anger, or wrestling with our fear? Can we accept the freedom and power that God gives us to hold on? Because that, my friends, I believe is the victory in this story. It's not that Jacob pinned God. It's not that God yanked out the tendon from Jacob's leg. I think the victory is in discovering who is worth never letting go. That for Jacob, through all of his twists and turns, held on to God through his anger and frustration and confusion and disillusionment, through it all, he held on to God. And God held on to him. And as dawn broke and Jacob, now Israel, stepped into the future, he realized that, yeah, being known as the one that wrestles with God, that fits. Because it's not always pretty but I know that God is worth never letting go. And I think that's a story worth telling. Amen.